Are you someone who enjoys a good glass of wine but is never sure just what to get? Indulge your inner enophile and take the guesswork out of wine by signing up for the National Review Wine Club. All of our wines are selected by a team with more than 150 years of collective experience buying, judging, and making wine. We weed through the thousands of wines out there to select the very best of the best and deliver it straight to your door, all at an unbeatable price. Not only that, the Wine Club is also a great way to support our valuable conservative journalism here at National Review. A portion of every order goes to helping us grow our team and editorial impact. And there's no time better than today. Our introductory special delivers four of our hand-selected wines straight to your door, for only $29.99. So head over to nationalreviewwineclub.com today and get ready to kick back with an exquisite bottle of wine in the comfort of your own home. How did the disasters of school closures and remote learning bolster school choice? What gains have been made and what's coming next? We'll discuss all this and more on a special sponsored school choice edition of The Editors with Tommy Schultz, CEO of the American Federation for Children. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our regularly scheduled programming will return soon. So with that, Tommy, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rich. Really appreciate it. All right, so let's let's go big picture here at the beginning. Obviously, major contention over the schools during the, the pandemic and school closures and so-called hybrid learning. Calling it learning was, was probably an exaggeration, but a, a lot of discontent on the part of parents, a lot of, of visibility into what schools were doing that might not have been there. Uh, before, thanks to this so-called remote learning, and how has this affected the school choice movement, and what have we seen happen over the last eighteen months or so? Yeah, uh, I think that's the proper framing for everything that happened today, and I think it's even worthwhile to take a bit of a step back and to say, you know, what are we talking about in terms of school choice? What are we talking about when we hear education freedom? You know, going back to whether it's uh, Milton Friedman's famous essay and uh, uh, scholarship talking about the need for vouchers to basically put parents fully in charge of their education funding to, you know, both empower these parents, but also to create competition within the schooling system to then fast forward to the 1990s, uh, where we had the implementation of a voucher program in Milwaukee and then the creation of charter schools, which was sort of a lighter version of the kind of district run public school system. And over time, you know, kind of variations and expansions happened in the different states up until, you know, roughly speaking, 2020, uh, you had about 25 different states pushing out, you know, about $3.4 billion worth of funding to families to control in the term in the form of a tax credit scholarship or uh, a voucher or an education savings account, uh, which allowed kids to go to private schools or to kind of customize their learning environment. And then you had, you know, about three and a half million kids in charter schools. And then since 2020, you know, I referenced that $3.4 billion number. You know, when you look at what has happened uh, in the legislative landscape in the last 18 months or so, where you had Arizona, Iowa, Utah, Arkansas, Florida, Indiana, South Carolina, Oklahoma, Ohio, you know, 
you run through the gamut of other states that increase like their programs either incrementally or the ones I just named that said every student or nearly every single student is eligible for school choice. Uh, suddenly we're talking about upwards of nearly $40 billion being accessible for families to control for their child's education every single year. I mean, we virtually have 10x the school choice movement in roughly 20% of the states or so, uh, and families in these states are eligible across the country for some form of schooling uh, choice program. And they're basically given a full educational freedom in many of these states where you can deploy these resources for curriculum, for tutoring, for private school tuition, for special needs therapies. The customization in some of these places like Florida and Arizona is just really incredible. I think it's going to better serve the needs of families. And really, if you even take a step back a couple years before this kind of COVID moment uh, hit where the unions reacted so aggressively uh, and really kind of tipped the scales in the favor in terms of families being able to access these programs, you know, you go to 2018 and just how different history could have been. In 2018, there was virtually zero uh, school choice expansions happening because if you might have recalled, in 2018, the teachers unions did this big red for ed movement where they uh, marched on state capitals in a dozen plus states. They got virtually everything they wanted. They got monster increases to public education funding and supposedly for big teacher pay raises. And yet it's always funny how these big union deals for teacher pay raises never really reach the, the pockets of the teachers themselves, right? And you, you look at the kind of what the public statements were from some of the teachers union leaders, like in California, they were saying by 2020, we want to gear up our entire capacity to strike again, right? They they saw that they hit this nuke button of striking in all these states, getting what they want. And they're like, why don't we just keep doing this? It's, it's a, clearly a political tactic that works for us. And I don't think any of us had anticipated that what would actually happen in 2020 was, yeah, they did a nationwide strike uh, trying to, quote unquote, build up the kind of necessary capabilities to battle COVID and to get to the front of the lines of the vaccine, uh, to get federal funding, to reopen schools. And it's funny how in some of these states that got just billions of dollars in, quote unquote, COVID relief funding, some of them didn't really fully reopen schools for 18 months or two years. And even, you know, then you look at the contrast of how 90 percent of private schools were open by October of 2020. Parents are going, wait a minute, my kid's getting this weird hybrid Zoom schooling thing that is just suboptimal. Uh, but the private school kids are going to school right now. What's going on here? And, you know, couple that with some of the kind of outrageous things that parents were seeing in terms of curriculum and ideology being pushed forth in the schools. Lot of, lots of parents and lots of lawmakers finally said, enough is enough. We're going to empower parents. We're going to take away this power from the teachers unions. And boy, again, we've we've 10x the opportunities for families. And I think there's more to more exciting things on the horizon here. And pretty much everywhere where there are steps ahead, was it explicitly we had this terrible experience during the pandemic and we got to empower parents? Look, it is very much the case that it's like there was this order of operations, right? Schooling goes home. Parents are seeing what's going on in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Many kind of citizen journalists and activists were out there exposing some of these radical policies that have been seeping into the schools that parents maybe were unaware of um, or lawmakers were unaware of that they were funding it with state funding. And suddenly there became this question of what do we do, right? Is it just that we ban these kind of things that are happening? Is it that we try and rejigger the funding? And for and it kind of became this like moment of like there's an idea that's been in the drawer called education freedom, called school choice that says 
the problem is the funding, right? The problem is the overall structure of how we've done schooling in this country, which has virtually been on autopilot since the 1850s when we stole the kind of model from Prussia, right? You've probably talked and written about this, you know, time and time again. And now this new idea or this relatively new idea, which says, let's let parents control the funding so that they don't have to seemingly go to the school board on the Tuesdays or Thursday nights, argue for two hours to then have nothing change. Parents, if they control the funding, they can leave tomorrow if they disagree what's going on in the schools. If or if they see that their child is getting a subpar education, they're not reading by a certain you know grade level benchmark. They could leave and go to the better school just down the mm-hmm. road. Or even more excitingly, right, you can actually have entrepreneurs step into the fray to say we want to build a newer type of school or we want to build something that's custom tailor fit to each of the needs of our students. And with this kind of new mentality that parents are in control of funding rather than the bureaucrats or the nebulous broad school district, suddenly things get really exciting and lawmakers really got an understanding of, oh, that is the path forward. It's not just about moving a kid from public to private school or it's just creating this voucher system that's sort of like an exit lifeboat strategy. It's like, no, 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 we're actually empowering every single person in the system Mm -hmm. and that's going to lift all boats. And we've seen the track record of success of these types of programs in Florida and in Arizona for the past 20 years that have led folks to go, wait, this is no longer just some pie in the sky think tank idea. This has actually already been improving the lives of so many. Let's really unleash the system and let parents fully control it. So with regard to, to stealing the, the Prussian model, there there's a, a school I, I drove by, not, not too far from where I, where I live in the, the Northeast area. And for all I know, it's a, a perfectly fine school, but it's a very traditional brick building. And it kind of looks like a factory, like a textile factory, you know, from the 19th century, you know, a, an abandoned building you might see in New Hampshire or somewhere that used to be a, a textile factory. I was just thinking, that's like the the last place I'd want to step into, you know, it just feels so in, in, industrial and bureaucratic. And now, of course, you have you have all, all sorts of other other options. Yeah, and in many places. Yeah, and when you talk about like the architecture of our schools, it's been a long kind of known thing that like when you think about how uh, the needs of what we were looking for from that Prussian system, which was we wanted orderly factory workers, we wanted orderly soldiers. I mean, R- Prussia just lost a big war. It's like how do they they wanted to re-engineer a system that built up a better kind of factory model industrial economy, which might have been fine, kind of like our during the, you know, pre, you know, World War One, World War Two era kind of dynamics we were dealing with. But in this knowledge economy or in this new kind of dynamic where you've got so many of these other countries that are spending less money or they are spending fewer hours in the classroom relative to us that are just dwarfing us in terms of their educational achievement for their kids. It's like clearly we got to shift things around here. And when you look at also kind of the architecture of our system, not from a like physical building standpoint necessarily, but from a system that says we are necessarily advantaging the haves, right? The haves of if you are dissatisfied with your local district school, if you can afford to move, great, you're in a good position, you may be able to find that quote unquote better school district. Or if you are in the position to pay for private school tuition, you know, God bless you, that great, great decision for you and your family. But for anyone else who isn't in that position, it's like we are basically telling them tough luck that you are, whatever your zip code is, uh, deal with it. And mm-hmm. even if your school is failing and if you look at these horrible statistics out of some of these you know, really, truly uh, awful or corrupt kind of school systems in some of these pockets of our country, that 
if you just continue to fail or you continue to underperform, you get more money? Like the backwards incentives of this system and the architecture of it is such that it is necessarily basically doomed to fail both parents, uh, our best teachers, uh, you know, the leadership of schools who want to do good that are suddenly stifled by overregulations and different funding mechanics that say, hey, if you hire more teachers on this front, you're going to get more, you're more funding over here. You're going to hire more administrators for this. It, you, you wonder why the administrative bloat and the statistics you see is such that it's like, gosh, administrators are growing at like 180% in the last you know 15 years, but our student population, mm-hmm. our teacher population is only up like 8%. What's going on there, right? And it's the incentives. It's the actual architecture of what we built that is driving these poor outcomes. It's driving these funding decisions. And COVID was the probably uh, culmination of everything that we were just kind of talking about, which was if the unions created enough pressure and said, we're going to stay out of the classrooms as long as possible because we want to get $192 billion from the feds for quote unquote COVID relief. Uh, they knew if they pushed that button, they were going to get it. And lo and behold, they got it. And to be, to put it into context, that $192 billion, what could we have done with that money? Well, you could have given every single teacher in America a $60,000 bonus, right? Or you could have given roughly half of the kids in this country a school voucher, which would have gotten them into a private school. I mean, the type of money that we're talking about is just astounding. And the fact that, again, the the unions were so uh, strategic and tactical around, like, we know what we need to do to get some extra funding coming our way. Uh, It's just, it's incredible. And I hope a lot of lawmakers learn the lesson that as they're now trying to agitate for, well, look, COVID is back. We need to, you know, already I'm seeing a Maryland school district is putting third graders into masks, things like that. You know what's next is like we need more money, right? And despite some of these states getting, you know, tens of billions of dollars for this, you know, to re-retrofit HVAC systems or do whatever, they either haven't spent it and you're kind of going, where is this money going? Why why are there mm-hmm. all these new AstroTurf football fields in some of these schools? You know, when you really follow the money, right. it gets it gets to be revealing. It, it also just, just seems to me, I, I mean, of all the things we should be spending on in education, HVAC systems is just um, – just would not strike me as, as being high on the list. Look, Michigan, I saw they were like, we're closing schools uh, this week because it's just too hot in some of our classrooms. It's like, again, wh- wh- where did all that federal money go? $192 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of money got shuffled down to our schools uh, and they're not either spending it or they're kind of being, you know, they're moving kind of the, uh, the shells around of like how they're spending or where it's going. And to me, it's like, you know, again, that 192 billion wasn't going to solve our reading crisis, which says, you right. know, 60, 70 percent of kids in third and eighth grade or fourth and eighth grade aren't reading at the grade level benchmarks, which, as you know, Rich, they're, they're already pretty low benchmarks that we're talking about here. Um, you know, none of that money kind of tranche that we sent down was going to solve those problems. And this is where I, it's so exciting what's happening with the school choice and education freedom movement is that we're now getting to the heart of this, that we can maybe solve these problems, that we can maybe build anew and we can build dozens and dozens of different types of schooling models that best serve the needs of every individual kid. That's what's so exciting on the horizon. I feel honestly that this is probably going to be the most exciting 10 years 
of our educational history that we're at, that we've ever known uh, because we're actually going to be able to try and build these like academies of excellence and even you mentioned that school that's like you said looked like a factory it's like well what if within that factory you have three or four different types of schooling settings mm-hmm. you got Montessori along with some gifted and talented program along with some kind of trade thing you can start to really imagine like wait a minute if parents are in control of funding if they're demanding certain kind of things if there's a marketplace for these ideas uh, that they could actually spend it on versus, hey, go to your district, figure it out, or try and buy your way out of the system. Uh, much yeah, so, more, much more exciting. So, so I want to get to some particulars of um, how these successes were forged over the last eighteen months. But before we do that, while we're on this general topic, so what does the research say about uh, school choice and, and what its effect is on on educational attainment of students? Yeah, and I forget if it's a, um, a Chesterton quote or you're, you're much more um, versed in some of these things than I am. But like he has this great quote about like, you know, the reason we're not like seeing, you know, a great thriving Christianity is that Christianity has never been tried fully. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. To some extent, you know, the best research that you can point to, and I think the one that really drives kind of the heart of what we're talking about is the stuff that we've seen out of Florida and Arizona, where when you're giving you know adequate enough funding to each of these students for these school choice programs, when you have a big marketplace of options, when you have the regulatory environment such that it's not stifling, you're seeing huge impacts. So I mean, Florida has a great study out from the Urban Institute, uh, which isn't some right wing kind of thing, right. but the Urban Institute published a, you know a couple of studies that I think are, were in 2017 and 2019, looking at that program for lower income students, showing. 40 per, these kids are 40% more likely to enroll in college relative to their public school peers that are also low income. Uh, you know, their, their long-term educational attainment outcomes, that's like the really, some of the biggest like key proxies that we've got that show that, boy, if you have a really successfully designed school choice program, this helps, you know, kids overall. And couple that with David Figlio's research out of Northwestern in Florida that showed, you know, the more choice that an individual school district had around it, more options and like, you know, actual competition, you know, basically the public schools got so much better. And when you look at then the actual statistics of how in places like Miami-Dade, you know, which I think was the fourth largest school district at the time that some of these studies were put out, that 70 percent of kids are not going to their zone public schools. And yet they're the best performing largest school district in the country. You start to go like, wait a minute, yeah, why we need to kind of extrapolate this Florida style model to all these other states. And Arizona, you know, I mentioned earlier, I mean, they've got they've also been pushing the gas uh, pedal to the metal over the last 20 years with choice. They've had some of the most aggressive growth in terms of academic gains for lower income students. Uh, over the last 10 years, according to kind of the Stanford Credo educational studies that they've done, it's really just when you look at the the impact of these big programs that are helping a population at scale, we're not looking at minor kind of small programs or programs that are kind of overregulated by the state. You can really see that's the power of how uh, a choice program really works. And that's the model that a lot of these states have now picked up in the last year. Ohio, Indiana, uh, Iowa, Utah, you name it. They've all said we want to fully empower parents with enough funding and enough choices to then make a great decision for their kid. And look, the parents are obviously going to be thrilled with this. Arizona went from 
10,000 kids enrolled in their education savings account program to there might be, I think, at least 60,000 already in the new expansion within the last year. Uh, Indiana saw a 20% jump. Uh, Florida's already, they were at like something like 280,000 kids across their private school choice programs. And now I think 400,000 have applied for the new ESA program. And this is all within a year. And this is without some, you know, bullish multi-year marketing kind of dose that is being pummeled into it, right? So the demand is there. The research is showing that this stuff works. The parents are obviously much more satisfied. So I think it's going to grow in years to come. So talk to us a little bit about uh, some of the signature political fights over the last year or so. Yeah, the one of the funny things that we have seen, uh, not necessarily uh, surprising, is that when we've um, we built up this really great uh, fellowship program for former beneficiaries of uh, vouchers and tax credit scholarships and or who have gone to a charter school and we bring them into this kind of fellowship program and most of them are stunned that this them going to a better school and them having access to a program like that in their state was a political fight right and in the same way that imagine rich like in some of these states where uh, like if you are a resident of the state you get to go to a state college at a reduced kind of cost right you know, it's that's really not controversial in most of the, of the minds of Americans because all these states did this over the past 30, 40 years or even, you know, maybe even before then in some pockets. And but now it's like, wait, why aren't we doing that in K-12? We have these pre-K programs in many states that are funding parents to go to private education. We've got these kind of higher ed programs that are allowing kids to access Pell Grants, GI Bill, you name it. But then when it's K-12, through it's a political fight. Right. So. Uh, the nature of your question is spot on that everything that we're doing is about impacting and changing state legislation because that's where you know the bulk of education funding is dictated and where the real education decisions happen in terms of allocation of resources school boards and you know a lot of people reflexively think it's all at the school board level it's like well yes there are a lot of important decisions that happen there but that's i mean the bulk of the kind of let's call it battleship carrier group kind of trajectory stuff is at the state level. So we have been engaging the states uh, for the better part of, you know, more than essentially two decades. Since 2010, we've deployed about $250 million trying to advance school choice policies at the state level. Uh, Right now we've got, uh, I believe it's now 31 states that have uh, implemented, 33, excuse me, that have implemented uh, some form of a school choice program across the states or D.C. and Puerto Rico. Uh, we've got even more that have done a charter school program. But over the last year, in the places like I mentioned, Iowa, they were the first out the gate this year to really put forward the the big universal school choice uh, legislation that passed within three weeks. You know, Iowa is a great example where seven incumbent lawmakers were defeated by the coalition of people working on school choice, hostile to school choice, all Republicans who were kind of blocking this initiative because they were either beholden to the teachers union or the local kind of power base. And all of a sudden, once you change the whip count in the legislature like that, you can pass a program pretty easily. And then, you know, all the other states kind of had similar fights in their own capacities. And overall, you know, we had a 76 percent win rate across the 370 or more races that we got involved in at the state legislature. And the big one is, you know, taking out an incumbent, you know, 90 percent of a city, you know, 90 percent of sitting lawmakers keep their mm-hmm. seat in a given election. Well, we targeted 69 uh, lawmakers last cycle and we beat 40 of them. So a 57 percent win rate, which. Uh, again, I think that was sort of the bellwether for us this last education, this last election cycle, that education is going to be at the forefront of all these 
state legislative agendas. It is the key topic that parents are talking about right now. A lot of people, I think, kind of saw the Glenn Youngkin election uh, in 2021 as a bit of a a bellwether of its own of that right. in that regard. Where hey, if parents are the new special interest group in town. This is going to utterly kind of etch a sketch shift the political dynamics that are typical in any given state when and even the Gallup polling or I think it's Gallup that does this survey showing, you know, who do you trust more in education? Usually Democrats lead that by 20 points or more. And all of a sudden in a lot of these polls, it's like, oh, they're only leading by four or in some states they're you know, they're trusting Republicans more on these issues. Just a huge tectonic plate shift that happened with within the political system and within public opinion polling. And our own polling showed that from 2021, you know, 60 or 2020, 64% of people supported school choice. Now it's up to 71% of people support school choice in our latest poll. And the biggest jumps were in, you know, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, and public school parents, right? And so that's a huge, just massive shift that you just every pollster that you talk to, like they're just like you don't see this happen in that quick of a, a time frame. And when we're talking about it, big issues like this. So going back to to Iowa and and those state legislators you, you mentioned who were beholden to the teachers unions or for some other reason resistant to school choice. So why is a Republican beholden to teachers unions? Is it money? Is it relationships? Is it, it just depend? Where does that phenomenon come from? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, Rich, I mean, uh, we, you know, raised and deployed about $30 million last year across our kind of advocacy operation. Um, how much do you think the, the two national teachers unions brought in last year in terms of revenue? What, what's your guess? Oh, uh, in terms of uh, um, ra- raising money? Yeah, in terms of the money dues. they're collecting from dues and everything like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. $300 million. Uh, you were close. It was about three billion. Um, so three billion, three billion. Because think of it, you got three million or so educators and education professionals. We're not only talking about teachers, so it's probably more appropriate to call it like what Betsy DeVos keeps saying. It's like these are the big schooling unions, right? This is not just. I, I, I like how generous you are with your math, saying I was close with three hundred million. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I mean, yeah, one hundred and fifty times the size of our kind of enterprise, and. When you think about what that means, both in terms of their campaign contributions, you know, quite directly, you can just see, you know, from all the uh, the tally that they are both influencing huge parts of the Democratic Party apparatus. Uh, it's kind of the lifeblood of the Democratic Party. But then also in these strategic races for Republicans, they're very dominant. And couple that then with uh, think of kind of the school superintendents dynamics where Um, Texas is a great example where, you know, there's like 1,300 school districts across Texas that are, uh, you know, maybe a a single state legislator has four or five different superintendents and all of the associated employees and all of the associated funding. And then think of all the contractors that are involved in building that new football stadium or building the new HVAC system that you referenced earlier. You just think about how in some of these counties, right, it's upwards of 40 or 50 percent of the revenue of that uh, county apparatus is going through around the school system. It is just this behemoth of a real power broker within the system. And when you see all these superintendents that are all making $300,000 plus a year, and there's hundreds of them across the state, you start to really understand, like, boy, these people have a vested interest in keeping things exactly the way they are. And therefore, too, when some of them, it's like, look, I've got all my family and friends that are employed in this school system, and they think if we create an education savings account program, uh, we're doomed for all of a sudden. <laughs> the kind of fundamental question there is like, well, wait a minute. 
if everybody who is working within the school system is telling you, uh, if we create a choice system, everybody's going to flee, what are you saying about the product right. you're delivering, right? Like, right. But yeah, right. examine the premise kind of first principles here. Uh, but setting that aside, it's like, look, uh, these if uh, you, the places where we've seen choice be so successful, like in Florida, is where you've got like superintendents that actually go, wait a minute, let's embrace this choice wave. Let's create a system that actually fully functions both the district schools, charter schools, private schools, home education, and say, these are all of our kids and we should make them all successful. Let's work together. Uh, because no one school is going to be a fit for every single kid. I mean, that old way of thinking from the 1850s is just insane in this kind of new modern economy or with the kind of particular needs of each of these individual communities. And why isn't it that that local rural school district says, hey, we're going to partner with maybe that church down the road to kind of you know d- deal with some of our excess capacity issues or we're going to marry up some of the best trade kind of school dynamics and you know let school kids do more of a hybrid online version of things if we feel that that's best and we're going to let the parents kind of drive the decisions of that versus saying no give all the money to the school districts let them decide how they're going to spend it uh parents maybe have some input maybe at the school board meeting but that's not going to be they're not going to be able to vote with their feet because all the money's coming to us and they have no other options right that's where it's like these fundamental dynamics are shifting and where all these old arguments that have been perpetrated since the 1990s where it's like it costs us money or we're going to lose students and things like that you know lawmakers are starting to wake up to the like wait a minute here's what's really going on and this is the way forward so one of the main arguments right is that you're you're starving the public school of, of resources by by spending on this uh, uh, other other system or letting parents avail themselves of of another system and you're skimming as well, right? That, is that another argument that's made? You're just taking the best students out of the public schools and, and, and leaving them with fewer resources and, and uh, t- tougher kids to work with. Yeah, these arguments have been the same things. I mean, I'm kind of laughing at how the, like the other side has never hasn't come up with a new argument since 1991. <laughs> um, but they'll talk out of both sides of their mouth, right? It's like uh, class sizes are too big. It's like, okay, well, why don't we create new options and more classrooms and give parents options? It's like, well, no, they have to stay in the system because we want the, that eighteen thousand one hundred dollars mm-hmm. per kid that we're getting on average, uh, or that we're spending on average across the country. Um, or when they say it's like, well, they're skimming. It's like, okay, well, that's not true. The, the studies actually show in all these places that it's if you're like aggravated with your school system or your kids getting you know low performing, they are the most likely ones to leave, right? If your kid's a straight A student mm-hmm. at the public school and they're like enjoying their experience. It's just intuitive that it's like, why would you necessarily want to leave if you're perfectly happy with that situation, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, couple that with the premise of their question is just like, they're saying in this theoretical landscape, the people that know or that can will leave because they don't want to be here. Again, what they're that they're saying, the, the like, the scary part out loud, which is that we know we're offering a substandard product. And the, I mean, the district level data shows this. And it's kind of funny when even recently in Texas, there was a superintendent testifying about how he was against vouchers and it's terrible and, you know, it's going to hurt the, the academic quality. And one of the state legislators just simply asked him, he's like, how many kids are proficient in, you know, fourth grade reading? And he's like, oh, I don't really know. I think we got work to do. And he's like, uh, it's 40. So the majority of kids in your school district are not reading, reading at grade level. 
you uh, you where do you have a leg to stand on to say that we need to be this might hurt the academic quality of what we're trying to do here um so yeah argument by argument they're always this kind of straw man that has just fallen apart and now because so many states have actually implemented huge programs at scale with these tremendous results and with parents you know flocking to them it's hard to kind of resist the fundamental truth here and like you said at the beginning of this whole interview when parents really saw what was going on in covid Parents then were like looking for an outlet to figure this out. And before the only outlet you had was yell at the school board, hope something changes and maybe they get their act together in 10 years where it's like, no, no, a choice system means you can access that better school now, tomorrow. If you have the funding in control, you know, in your control, you can fix whatever problem is going on and fix it tomorrow versus hoping that in one day the school district finally gets their turnaround plan together, which they always promise, but it never actually comes to fruition. Right. So you mentioned superintendents in Florida. Are there other places where you've you've had people who are embedded in the current system who are just like, you know what, bring it on. Uh, We have great schools. They're going to get better. And if you want to go someplace else, okay, fine. But we're not not afraid of this. We'll embrace this. Yeah. You know, in pockets of each of these states and a lot of the ones that have had the choice programs, whether it's, you know, Indiana or Ohio or some, you know, Ohio is the classic one that had the big Supreme Court case in 2002, which kind of gave vouchers their constitutionality, right? Um, You know, all these states have had these pockets of superintendents that get it, that this is the system and this is actually something to be embraced and not to be afraid of because, you know, by and large, there's still going to be a lot of people that want to choose that local district school, but some parents want something different for their kids, right? And I think what's actually going to be the real kind of union killer of their kind of, uh, you know, uh, fake empire that they built around this whole thing um, is that think of all the teachers that are out there, right? You got about 3 million teachers kind of uh, in public schools right now. Um, the average lifespan of a teacher kind of in the classroom is only about four years, which is about the same kind of attrition rate of an NFL player, uh, <laughs> which kind of points to something, right? That you talk and you probably have teachers in your own family and as do I, and as does everybody else in this kind of country, Every one of these teachers that have left, they're all like, I got frustrated with this system. They told me the only way I could like earn more or do have a bigger impact was to get out of the classroom and go into administration, which like, no, I wanted to be in the front lines and I wanted to help these kids. Or I was oversaddled with regulations and kind of crazy bureaucratic demands and I couldn't be a great teacher. And then the teachers colleges themselves didn't really prepare them of like, here's the science of reading. Here's how to do things better. Right. So the system itself was just so rotten. And now that you've got tens of millions of former teachers that are on the sidelines looking at places like Florida and Arizona going, wait a minute, I could basically start my own school, my own little micro school in my community, or I could kind of band together, get a bunch of people and maybe some excess funding coupled with the choice program funding coming from parents and we can build like a full-fledged school like in a pretty quick uh, rapid um, uh, period of time think of how much more exciting this is this is going to be the golden age of great teachers in that every teacher right now in the public school system if they're looking around going gosh you know i've got 20 kids in the class and you know roughly speaking it's about $18,000 per kid per year there's about $360,000 in revenue coming into my classroom i know that my salary is x like Where's the rest of the money going, right? Suddenly, when you can think of like a new and go, wait a minute, if I'm going to mm-hmm. Florida and every kid's getting seven, eight, nine thousand dollars per kid per year, 
you can start to see how the economics work to where like new things are going to be built and new kind of academies, micro schools. They're just you were already seeing they're starting to you know massively blow up in places like Arizona and Florida. And more to come as more and more states come online. But this is going to be the golden era of great teachers. This is what's going to really get the unions just furious is that they're going to start losing members. Like they've already been losing members. They've just been raising their dues amounts to kind of make up for the, the, the difference. But when when teachers can really start to go, I can be my own boss and entrepreneur and you know do what I love and work with kids because these choice programs enable that, that's going to be what's going to really take down kind of that empire that the teachers unions have built. That's interesting. I'm, I'm very surprised at that. You're throwing a lot of surprising numbers at me, Tommy, <laughs> between the three billion and then the average uh, lifespan in the, the classroom, career in the classroom being four years. Uh, just in my mind's eye, I, I just think, think of most teachers, just public schools teachers, just being there forever. Look, there, there's definitely some that like, you know, we've all had those or know those teachers where it's like, oh, I've been in the mm-hmm. classroom for 20 years. But when you really think about it, I mean, their business model is much more kind of a, akin to, you know, some of these kind of, you know, military uh, branches where it's like, hey, look, we know there's always gonna be this attrition rate. It's just kind of historical. We got a plan for recruiting around that. And um, they, they've now but they've now gotten to this tipping point to where teachers are going like, wait, I got to go into debt to go get this kind of master's degree, which isn't actually going to prepare me for much. I'm going to be out of the classroom in four years because all, you know, everybody's just seeing how frustrating things are or they realize they can do try to do all these innovative and great things. But then if the union or the districts are like, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't introduce this sort of innovation. Um, And then, too, they're told like, well, we just need to lobby for more funding. And then they go and lobby and they get the more funding and the teacher's like, well, it didn't really reach my pocket. Like, I'm fed up with this. The unions get to just start afresh again. New crop of educators come in. It's like tell them like, oh, mm-hmm. look, it's a funding challenge. And you and like the the fact that they're, they, you know, they're pressuring and forcing these folks to like go separately fundraise for extra school supplies. It's like, again, spending $18,000 per kid per year on average. They should be going, you know, teachers should feel empowered to go and ask some questions of the the district and the bureaucracy and the unions about where the heck is this money going? Why isn't it reaching the classroom? And the statistics show that, I mean, and often like especially like the major urban kind of uh, school systems, I mean, maybe 40 cents on the dollar is actually reaching the classroom. Uh, it's just outrageous. And whereas every you could see where you can build these low cost kind of private schools that are really putting te- you know the great teachers at the forefront of things they're paying them really well they're you know these teachers are able to grow and expand their careers stay in the classroom for a while that's a much more exciting prospect than hey become an administrator and you have to leave the classroom if you want to get paid a little bit more right yeah so you mentioned earlier that the the, the parents likeliest to avail themselves of these kind of choice programs are parents of, of kids who, who aren't doing very well in the public schools. You know, you're know, you not going to be dissatisfied with your public school if your student's doing fine and getting all A's, which goes to what at least used to be the conventional wisdom around the politics of school choice in the, the period when there are a number of ballot measures, um, school choice ballot measures going down, which is like, okay, yeah, you can, you can appeal to um, folks in, in urban schools with this Polly Williams, you know, you mentioned Milwaukee yeah. at the beginning. I, I you know, I, I can't tell you how many, how many times I read about Polly Williams in National Review back in the day in the <laughs> 80s, uh, in the 90s. But suburban parents, no, it's a, it's a tougher sell. And that's why you're going to have a, a check on the, the growth of these sort of programs. But has that proven just to be wrong? 
Well, I think that was the, you said you don't like narratives, right? Or you sometimes hate the word narrative, but that was the narrative that like, hey, until this reaches into the suburban population, there won't be much of a political power base. I think there's probably some grains of truth there. I think at the end of the day that, you know, what COVID fundamentally showed people, or at least got a lot of people really interested in, is that um, even in these vaunted suburban school districts that where everyone you might hear kind of through the grapevine that, oh, that's a great school, when people really looked under the hood, they're like, wait a minute, it's maybe not. And, oh, I'm actually going to go look at the education statistics and I can see that here's the average of kind of reading proficiency or math proficiency, like what's going on here, let alone, again, the ideological kind of battles around like, what the heck is this kind of, you know, wacky ideology that's being taught to my kids? Like, and then when they're not learning math or they can't read, suddenly it's like, that's what really shifted a lot of things for, I think, people of all any stripe of both, you know, political persuasion, you know, uh, location, you know, rural, urban, you know, suburban. And um, I think, by and large, you know, it was easy in the 80s or 90s to try and say that this was just solely an urban problem and that, and I'd heard this when I'd worked in some of these states previously, that, look, it's it's, it's just an urban problem, that that needs the major surgery, but some of these other schools out there, maybe they need a little Tylenol and that's it, but it's like, no, no, no. The broader system, it's all pretty much interconnected. The fact that, yes, some parents could move who are like, uh, you know, had the, the means to do so and could put their kids into a better situation, they were probably generally already going to do better regardless of the school system they were in. But now which, what we're doing is we're saying we are fundamentally leveling the playing field for everybody. Everybody is getting control of the, the education funding, right? Everybody, if they want, it could get access to that 7500 bucks, uh, you know, in Iowa to go to a, the, a better school for their kid. That all of a sudden makes just a lot more sense than trying to say, well, we want to try and target our coalition efforts or tra- target the policy to here. And maybe even Milton Friedman had a famous quote about this that like, you know, uh, something a- along the lines of really a, a, tar- a, tar- a program that's only targeted for the poor is going to eventually become a poor program. I don't know all the po- like kind of the, the long essay that he wrote this in, but. I think ultimately the best way to give lower income families in particular a leg up is to really give them the purchasing power parity that upper income families have always had in our education system, right? And that's what these school choice policies are fundamentally doing. So what is likely to be the counter offensive here? You know, there, there have been these enormous steps ahead. Some places, you know, the, the politics have changed. Doug Ducey, I imagine, was a, was a huge, played a huge role in the school choice program in Arizona. His replacement's a Democrat. He's not going to be as friendly to school choice. How, how, what, what kind of pushback do you expect? I anticipate there's going to be legislative pushback, legislative threats. Um, and in places, you know, Arizona, you mentioned that, like, look, yeah, the razor-thin margins in the legislature – to, that's kind of going to probably defend the program. But if that flips next year um, and, you know, Arizona is always a battleground state and there's probably going to be billions of dollars spent because of presidential dynamics next year, um, I could see folks doing a big play there that tries to undo that. However, um, I'll point back to the the challenge that they're going to the, like the fundamental challenge that anybody will face if they're trying to remove a program legislatively or if they're running a campaign that says, I'm running for governor, I'm running for state senate, and I want to end these choice programs. Look what happened to Andrew Gillum, right? He basically uh, went out and made that message in Florida in 2018 saying, I want to end these choice programs. 
and you know there's you know great kind of kind of scholarship uh, around there showing like look the school choice moms flipped the Florida governor's race in favor of Ron DeSantis because that, think about this fundamentally if you're telling a parent you know one of those low income moms in one of these states that just got their kid into that private school that their kid loves out of that public school that they hated for whatever reason and you're telling them yeah I want to evict your kid from that school uh, because I you know I, I the politics of it or whatever it's like, wait a minute, I'm becoming a single issue voter, right? And that's a, a, akin to what happened over the last two or three years uh, due to the reaction of COVID or when people are finding out about these wild gender policies with their kids, right? Where it's like, wait a minute, you're doing what to my kid or you're hiding what from me? Um, all of a sudden you become a single issue voter. It's like economy or you know all these other kind of culture war issues that maybe people talk about. It's like, if my kid is getting you know deliberately hurt or screwed over in the education system, which they only get one ch- shot at an education, right? Your kid goes through the K through 12 system only once you suddenly you tip the scales in favor of parents. So that's one threat that I think will be there. They'll try these things, but we, along with kind of like our whole apparatus and our kind of coalition, we will fight that tooth and nail, and I think we will win. And you mentioned ballot initiatives. Look, the, the other side has a strategic advantage on ballot initiatives, and they've known this, that if you get enough people to sign signatures, which is merely like get one or two employees, you know, uh, per school district, you know, or get every school district employee to sign this ballot thing. It gets to the ballot and then they just got to turn them out to go, you know, either negate a program or claw it back funding wise. It's mostly a Western state phenomenon and it's very kind of particular state by state, but they'll try to do that kind of stuff, um, which I think, again, maybe the, the, the winds have shifted in that we might actually start winning ballot initiatives because parents are going to be turning out now and they're not going to just be sold the lies that they've been sold for you know 20, 10 or 20 years. Um, those are some threats there. Um, you know, too, you could just see where uh, they're going to the other side is going to try and find that one controversy, you know, that one school. And then they're going to try to say that we've got to undo this program or the whole thing's rotten. And it's like, gosh, if we ran by that standard with everything going yeah, on in our right. district schools, I mean, I remember the Chicago public schools, I think it was two years ago, I saw a statistic that it was like they had 180 sexual assault cases reported for, um, you know, teachers on student sexual assault issues. And it's like that means every single day of the school year, there was one of these cases in the Chicago public schools and no one made, want, wanted to call for some dramatic overhaul of the Chicago public school system. So if the, again, if the other side wants to engage in a fight of like, hey, we maybe see something we don't like or we want to say that this is a systemic wide issue and there's like a a single instance of something bad like that's a game that they i think they know they will lose when you if you really extrapolate that to the broader k-12 through system mm-hmm. so those are a couple of the strategic things that are kind of always in the mix every single year that is just kind of the constant fight of this so finally what is the uh, most optimistic plausible vision of w- where this could go 10 years from now and what kind of education system we'd be looking at a decade from now. Yeah, I think um, this gets to sort of something we're already seeing. And, you know, the biggest drivers, it's like New York to Florida or, you know, some of these Midwest states into Ohio where parents are starting to vote with their feet and they're moving to states that have these educational choice policies. I know even in Florida, you know, there's been like a lot of articles written about how, you know, a lot of these schools in Florida are putting in these kind of drop down menus saying like, are you moving from New York for the, you know, the choice program, follow these steps or get to know the the details of our school and how the choice program works. And you're going to start to see where enough states are going to go, wow, if we want to compete 
in terms of economy, in terms of great jobs. We're going to have to really get our act together because no longer is this some amorphous push to fix the education system for the kind of business community, right? And I think this is a version of kind of an older battle around Common Core where all the states were like, hey, we got to up our standards. And then it kind of morphed into a few other different fights, right? But it's more like, well, wait a minute. If parents are just getting immediate access to better schools based upon the state policies, like in Florida and Iowa, Ohio, you name it, other states surrounding them are going to have to go, wait, we got to get, we have to do this on our own. And then that leads to, I think, this this really big push where states are going to try and think more innovatively and and, and a little more in a, in a bolder direction around how do we make sure this works even better for parents? How do we make sure that Think of it this way, Rich, like think of all the commercial office real estate that is going unused in all these different cities because, you know, the working kind of dynamics have changed so much. But think about where it's like name a major corporation that they're like, hey, guess what? We're actually going to build a private school like campus right here for our workers. And it's going to be funded by the state choice program. You know, Elon Musk sort of did this with his Ad Astra school at SpaceX, where he's like, hey, we, you know, we're kind of putting these people in a remote situation or in a kind of in a technical framework, like we need them to have a great school system right here on campus, you're going to start to see more and more of that. You're going to start to see a lot of these like kind of almost back to when like, you know, the pre-revolution and revolution era of America where you've got true community schooling happening where individual just small blocks and neighborhoods, I think are going to come together, build a micro school kind of situation that is very similar to like some like the innovative things you've seen in the homeschool community develop over the past 10 years. But that's just going to get on steroids where it's going to be maybe partnered up with a local school district even. And it may be partnered up with a private school, too. And you're just going to see, I think, this wave of kind of better academic performance like happening, a wave of satisfaction for parents around both schooling dynamics, work dynamics. I think you're going to see more and more businesses really take a hold and go like, actually, why don't we just rather than saying, hey, let's maybe try and sponsor a charter school or something that maybe gets built in 10 years. It's like. Why don't we build a school right now or just something that's a both we got daycare for the younger you know portions, but then we've got other class offerings that are maybe STEM oriented for uh, kids in that we're trying to train up into our field. I think you're just going to see more and more of these blends of programs really flourish alongside kind of the let's call it the brick and mortar system that I think is only going to get better and improve because parents are fully in charge. Parents are controlling the dynamics. Uh, the demands that they're seeking for their kids, which is they want a great education, they want a safe education, they want all sorts of offerings that are flexible and meet their needs. Suddenly, like the schools are going to go, "Yep, we're going to do that," or we're going to, or entrepreneurs are going to say, "We're going to build that." Um, versus the government-run, government-operated, uh, single-payer system that we've had for so long, which has just been fail- failing kind of kids for generations, particularly lower-income kids. Suddenly, we've now flipped the script in so many of these states, and that's just only going to compound over the years. Awesome. Tommy, this has been tremendous. Thanks so much for your time, and good luck out there. Yeah, thank you so much, Rich. Uh, Looking forward to talking again soon. So that's it for us. Again, this has been a special sponsored edition of The Editors. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time.